Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. Have been and have to continue to be because government schools need defending here on 3CR 855 and AM dial. Uh, we've been doing it on a Saturday lately, and it's good to have you company here about midday. Um, but from our point of view, it's an important business because government schools in Australia have been under threat for some time. And many people just assume the education system we have here in Australia is the one we deserve. It's just the inevitable consequence of what happens in, in, in school education um, when you have a civilised liberal democracy. Um, well, lately, of course, there's a question of whether we do live in a civilised liberal democracy. Um, and there's an even bigger question of, is the education system Australia has fit for purpose? Is it fit for purpose in Australia to separate our children out from, from the youngest of possible ages on the basis of their parents' incomes, on the basis of religion, on the basis of culture. Um, is it appropriate to separate children out from a young age and then educate them separately from each other? Um, many people think that this is becoming more and more problematic and there is only one way to for a state to effectively educate its children. That is with um, equity at the core of what the state is about and if taxpayers' money goes to children, which it should, to educate them because education is a collective responsibility, then that money should only go to education um, that is free, because taxes pay for it, um, is fair. Um, they don't care how much money your parents make as you walk through the school door. Um, and is, 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 um, it doesn't care about your religion. In fact, religion is left at the school gate. Um, if you do have a belief system that you go home to, that is your business. And quite, quite, quite frankly, you're right. Um, and to be protected. But nothing to do with learning maths or English or indeed history. Um, like history being one of the very dangerous subjects, of course, that you can be taught at school. Because if you're taught history at school, you can learn that the world changes. And if you learn that the world changes, then you learn that the world can change much more. And you can be one of those agents of change. But today we're talking about a number of very serious issues, I'm sorry to say, to start with, but we'll be finishing with some good news, as we always do, um, talking about our great state school. We'll be talking about the fundamental principle of the separation of religion from the state. Um, and in the largest liberal democracy, inverted commas, that we have in the world today, in the United States of America, um, one of their foundational tenets, the whole reason for America, in fact, was to separate that religion from the state, but some very scary things are happening within their judicial system about this very question, which Jean is more than qualified to talk about in an expert way, and she will be as part of her press release. I'll be investigating um, the education system of Canada, which has overtaken Australia. They were always just behind us, but now they're way ahead of us in terms of educating their children, and investigating why it is that Canada has leapt ahead of many Southeast Asian nations, and indeed leaping ahead of many Nordic countries at the moment oh. as well. Um, and um, Dale will be telling us all about a very simple premise um, that's been brought to light, particularly in Australia, but also around the world, that charity is not the cure for poverty. And of course, in an education system, to educate a child in a civilised nation is not, I repeat, not an act of charity. 
it is an investment and it is in fact the most civilised thing that human beings can do for themselves collectively is to educate the children that are produced in any town or country or city or state um, to the best of your collective ability. It is also the right of that child, any child, to have an education. Yep, and an excellent one which we're capable of providing in this country if only we'd get around to doing it. Um, but after all of these things, um, I think we're going to start with Jean's press release. But we'll start with Jean's press release here on the Defence of Government Schools programs um, after this. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Goongarra Environment Centre and Wildlife of the Central Highlands have started an email action for the threatened Greater Glider. Over 25% of the glider's habitat has been burnt in the fires and 90% of areas set aside for protection by the government last year have also burned. Yet their habitat is still being logged in the Central Highlands. Go to gecko.org.au to send an email to government ministers to call for protection of all remaining Greater Glider habitat. Goongarra Environment Centre Office is a 3CR supporter. Well, thank you very much, Robert. Um, Press release 826, Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue. This is a case presently before the United States Supreme Court and it is in a very worrying situation because President Trump has recently appointed a gentleman called Justice Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. So will the appointment of Justice Kavanaugh tip the balance against separation of religion and the state in the United States? This is a very real question. And uh, the case is presently being heard before the Supreme Court. Last Wednesday, the court heard oral arguments in a case of, enor- this, uh, case of enormous importance, Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue. In this case, the Supreme Court of Montana struck down a dollar-for-dollar tax credit for donations to private schools, including religious schools. The State Supreme Court held that the program ran afoul of the State Constitution's prohibition of public funding for religious education because the Montana uh, Constitution is a very strong one regarding separation of religion from the state. Now, a number of parents who send their children to religious schools in Montana itself want the United States Supreme Court to overturn this Montana decision and restore the program. They found a sympathetic audience in the oral submissions in Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who said that the state prohibition against funding religious education is, quote, rooted in grotesque religious bigotry against Catholics. He's referring to the Republican congressman, James G. Blaine, who, in 1875, tried to get Congress to pass a federal constitutional amendment banning taxpayer funding of religious schools. He failed, but in quite a few states, including Montana, he succeeded. There was a success. They have similar amendments in their state constitutions. Now, it is true that in the 19th century, Blaine, amongst others, was motivated, at least in part, by anti-Catholic beliefs because a large number of people actually don't believe what Catholics believe, which means they are anti-Catholic. But Kavanaugh is focusing on a very narrow slice of history. There are many valid reasons to oppose public funding of religion that have got nothing to do with the so-called anti-Catholic bigotry. 
One well-known opponent of public funding for religion was James Madison, who wrote of religion itself. Every page of it disavows dependence on the powers of this world. Religion is about the supernatural. It's not about having to be dependent on the powers of this world. In other words, if the government pays for religion, government meddling with religion isn't far behind. For this reason, President Madison vetoed a bill giving federal land to a Baptist church in Mississippi. This meant that separation of church and state isn't a form of hostility to religion, it's actually a method of protecting it. Both Thomas Jefferson and Roger Williams argued that a wall of separation was needed to protect religion from government predation. The program in Montana was a dollar-for-dollar tax credit for those who donate to private schools. So every dollar that was donated indirectly came from the public treasury. It's a bit like the billions in Australia given through tax exemptions. Also, the vast majority of private schools in Montana are religious, and that's true in many states. It's also true in Australia. Make no mistake, the program was a system of spending public dollars on religious education. It means that America is about where Australia was in 1956, when tax credits were given to the fee-paying parents of Australian private schools. So make no mistake, this program is a system of spending public dollars on religious education. So under these types of programs, Hindu taxpayers pay for teachers to tell students that those who don't accept Christ as their saviour will go to hell. And Jewish taxpayers will pay for instruction on how Jews kill Christ. Now this Evan Gertzman, who was writing this article, um, that I'm reading out, recently posted about a religious school in America that expelled a 15-year-old girl because she posted about having a rainbow birthday cake. So he argues that gay and lesbian taxpayers would foot the bill for that too under a Montano-type program. It's difficult to know how the Supreme Court will rule on this. Justice Kavanaugh and three of his conservative colleagues will probably vote to restore the public funding for religious schools. But some of the more liberal judges on the court seem interested in upholding the Montana Supreme Court on narrow technical grounds. And that would be better than reversing the Montana court, but it would be better if the Supreme Court rendered a clear and definite ruling that states do not have to fund religious education just because they fund public education and private secular education. This case largely rests on how the court applies two of its previous decisions. The first is a 2004 case, Locke versus Davey. In that case, the court held that a scholarship program in Washington State that refused to let a student use his publicly funded scholarship to major in theology did not violate his right to free exercise of religion. And the other decision... A more recent one that we've talked about on this program is the Trinity Lutheran Church versus Pauley. That case held that if a state gives secular schools funds to resurface their playgrounds to make them safer, it can't exclude religious schools from the funding program. Now these two cases are very easy to reconcile. The Trinity case involved a program that had nothing whatsoever to do with religious education. Withholding funds to avoid playground injuries would be as foolish as denying religious schools fire protection. No religious instruction took place in the playground, so there was a very clean line between the playground and the classroom. But by contrast, Locke involved religious instruction. The court clearly ruled that the state does not have to pay for instruction in theology, even if it pays for instruction in history or chemistry. And the Montana case is much more like 
the lock case, the, f- the first case, the 2004 case. What will happen when public money goes to a school that teaches a version of Islam that is sympathetic to jihadist viewpoints? And will it be healthy for society when Catholics, Protestants and Jews are competing for public money? Like so many cases in the last year, the decision may turn on the views of Chief Justice John Roberts. And in fact, what's happening to President Trump at the moment depends upon this man. Very conservative gentleman indeed that has um, made some pretty, pretty shocking decisions in recent years. And during oral argument, Roberts, who is traditionally very cautious, seemed very interested in the narrowest arguments that dismiss the case on technical grounds. The court recently went in that direction in the same-sex wedding case where the court ruled on grounds so narrow that it offered almost no guidance for future cases. So a repeat of that approach would be a mistake. This is an important issue that's been on the court's radar for many years and it is actually time to decide. Well, here in Australia, of course, the decision was made in 1981. And here in Australia, we no longer have separation of religion from the state. Uh, the state is giving billions of dollars to religious schools every year. But it also has uh, quite a lot to say about what is actually taught in those schools. Uh, to date, it hasn't been able to get on top of the schools to tell it just how much money they actually raise and how much they spend and where they spend it, as Auditor General's reports have told us. As we said last week, there's a scandal about gun clubs and sporting clubs in Australia at the moment, but beside the $181 billion that will be leaving our Treasury in the next 10 years and going to religious schools, that is chicken feed. But um, the United States to date has held the line, but this case is going to be very interesting. Can it hold the line and will it hold the line for much longer? So that is our press release and we'll have a bit of a break now with some music. Thank you. Um, for Dalio, the Prisoner's Chorus, there for your delight and edification after a delightful and informative press release by Jane. Jane, what press release number was that? 826. 826, yes. If you're interested in that press release and getting the details, you can. Um, it's the good thing about us here at the Dobbs. You can check us out. Fact checkers, please. Um, at our website, www.adogs.info. Or indeed through the, through the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Um, coming up now, we have um, our 
an interesting article, I think fascinating article, I think fundamental article, um, because here we talk about educational issues, but in Australia there's this strange, I find very distasteful mix um, of education systems, which each have their own sort of moral sort of frameworks and justifications. And often when I hear people who choose to send their children to religious schools, um, they'll talk about values. They'll talk about the values that are inculcated into their children in the private school that they have chosen to send their child to. And I go, well, well what do you mean by that? <laughs> and deep down, it's basically, well, the values are that my child doesn't have to sit alongside some poor child who's badly behaved. I'm paying for that privilege. And the discipline that can be instilled in a private school is more firm than in a state school. And so they'll talk about, that's what they want to talk about. What they, what they almost always talk about is say, oh, no, the children did this wonderful charity project uh, last year. And that's the sort of thing I want my child to do. I want them to be generous and do charitable works. Um, now, in the context of private education, they're taking taxpayers' money then to give certain taxpayers that they choose the money back through charitable charitable works of children who are, who are indeed themselves free labour. Mm. Um, it's this strange sort of virtuous circle. But deep at the heart of this is the idea that, that charity in its own, its own right is actually a way of solving the problem of poverty. Mm. Whereas, in fact, charity is an admission that we've got it wrong. Mm-hmm. If we have to indulge in the concept of charity so that people can have their basic human rights fulfilled then we, as a culture and society, um, need to address that as a fundamental problem such that we no longer require charitable institutions like St Vincent de Paul's and the Salvos to solve our problems of just the rights of the men and women of Australia being fulfilled. Mm. And Dal has a wonderful article that I think highlights this far better than I could. So I'm going to pass over to her. Thanks, Robert. Yes, I've got an article here which is interesting, um, not least because it's uh, written by Darren Walker, who's the president of the Ford Foundation, which is uh, quite a large charity in itself. But um, the article's entitled, Charity Won't Fix Inequality, Only Structural Change Will. Already. (laughs) It's not something you usually hear from the conservative sector. No, it's not. Um, I, I think this goes to the heart of a lot of what the dogs are about. Um, mm. We are one aspect of that, which is education. Mm. You know, education is not a charity. But anyway, please continue. I'm, I'm disturbing you. No, that's all right. Not at all. Okay, uh, he goes on. The individuals leading change and making the largest sacrifices are all too often the people most threatened by inequality. As we enter 2020 and survey the state of the world, two competing storylines seem to dominate the present. The first is ruthless, relentless inequality. We see this not only in the imbalance of our economy, but also in our politics and government, in education and expression, and in the ways that our social structures and cultural practices dismiss and disregard people because of their gender, race, ethnicity, ability and more. Then there is the corollary, people standing up, people speaking out and fighting back. Young, inspirational figures like Kynan Tiger, Greta Thunberg, Artemisia Zakriaba are spearheading movements to address the global climate crisis because their future is at risk. And in places like Hong Kong, India, Lebanon, Mexico, Sudan and many others around the globe, ordinary citizens are demanding better treatment, more transparency, greater equality and human dignity. They demonstrate time and time again their willingness to sacrifice everything, their time, their efforts, even their safety, in service of a better future for us all. Unfortunately, the truth is, the courageous individuals leading the change, the people driving the conversation and making the largest sacrifices, too often are the very people most threatened by inequality. And so I find myself asking, why is it that those with the least tend to sacrifice the most? How can it be that the most comfortable among us contribute, in relative terms, the least? What crisis needs to befall us in order to act? To be sure, 
Many with power and privilege already give with extraordinary generosity. As the president of the Ford Foundation, an organisation originally endowed by a family of great means, I have seen firsthand how the generosity of a few can affect the life of many. But this kind of generosity is too often suspended by the pervasive inequality of sacrifice, which we see both day to day and in the data. For example, a survey from the Chronicle of Philanthropy found that during the Great Recession, American households that earned more than $200,000 reduced their giving by more than 4%, while households that earned less than $100,000 did just the opposite. In fact, as they saw the need increase, they increased their giving, in turn by more than 4%. And this, despite the fact that tax codes in the US, Europe and other parts of the world have built-in incentives that reward the wealthy for their charitable donations. Generosity is too often superseded by the pervasive inequality of sacrifice. This all too common discomfort with sacrifice is not about good versus bad. The disconnect and disconnection follows from isolation and insulation. Separation breeds selfishness despite the best of intentions. In the United States, for, for instance, segregation was outlawed over 65 years ago. Yet a recent Civil Rights Project report found that America's schools remain both separate and unequal. We see similar trends of global of geographic divide in cities from America and Europe where a lack of economic opportunity has led to the disintegration of our social fabric. Restoring unity and trust will take more than generosity and goodwill. Charity, while wonderful, ameliorates the symptoms of inequality, but it does not address its root causes. And we must address the root causes. Keep in mind that large swathes of people around the world are growing increasingly impatient with the status quo, and we with power will feel their ire if we ignore their righteous demands for a fair and just society. So those of us with privilege need to find ways to do more to do more justice that means not only helping those who are often excluded but also undoing the systems and structures that create the inequities and imbalances in the first place that will sometimes also mean working to transfer our own power and giving up some of the privileges we currently enjoy Toward the end of last year, when our foundation hosted a conference on the future of philanthropy, I was struck by something Louis Miranda Jr., a philanthropist and father of entertainer Lin-Manuel Miranda, said about the philosophy with which he was raised. If it doesn't hurt, Miranda argued, if you're not doing something else, then you're not giving enough. This conception of sacrifice was profound. Only when it is uncomfortable or even painful to give do you know that you are giving for reasons beyond your own benefit. And it is worth remembering that despite this prick of pain, sacrifice has a value beyond what is given up. When you make this kind of sacrifice, you do not give up something for nothing. You give up some of your privilege for something far more valuable, justice. If we want to address the inequality of sacrifice, therefore, those of us with the most ought to recommit ourselves to doing the most. Perhaps the means of paying, perhaps that means paying a higher tax rate to finance public goods. Oh, or finally, he's got to the tax yeah. system. This is the crux of it, really. Or wielding our influence to promote inclusive public policies. Or perhaps it means devoting more time and money and effort towards rebuilding the broken systems that perpetuate inequality. We all must ask ourselves, what system, status or status quo are we willing to part with to benefit others? Only then... Only when we have paired our generous impulses and acts of justice will we diminish the inequality of sacrifice and build a better, more equitable world. 
Fascinating article. I really, I mean, I, I, I think at the end there he's talking about some really fundamental. Um, That's Darren idea. Walker. Darren he's Walker from yeah. the Ford Foundation, which is, yeah, just it's just a charitable mm, organisation, yeah. I guess. It yeah. took him a long time, though. It's only towards the end when he actually got to the crux of what we do in a liberal democracy. We pay tax into a central treasury for the common good. And if we're going to have an education system which levels inequality, then the taxation from the central treasury should only go to those schools that are open to all children. Mm. And education shouldn't have anything charitable about it. It is a child's right. If it is the common good, if it is for the good of the whole nation uh, or for the society that our children should be properly educated, then we pay th- for it through taxation. And that means the wealthy pay their taxes. In our society, a person who is wealthy, we know, has got around the tax system. Otherwise, they would not be wealthy. It's really that simple. Um, yeah, look, I, for me, actually, it goes slightly even deeper than that, because every time I hear the word sacrifice, my hackles go up, because it's a word, certainly in, 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 in Australia in many cases, and certainly in, used in many debates, which has been hij- notion of sacrifice um, has been hijacked in large part by people who wish to be noisy about the sacrifices they make. And often these people are Christian because the notion of Christian sacrifice is central to the idea of Christianity. Now, if you have a progressive taxation system, which is that the more money you earn, the greater the percentage of the tax you pay on money beyond that, that, that you've earned, which is more. Then it's obligation, it's not sacrifice. And so then it's an obligation, not a sacrifice. Whereas many people say, no, 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 I don't want to have a progressive taxation system, which is what our federal government did. They took away many progressive elements of our taxation system and created a a flat tax system, which is for every dollar you earn, you pay a certain amount of tax, no matter how many dollars, rich rich or poor. And that in itself takes away the notion of obligation of the wealthy. As soon as you flatten your tax rate, we're talking tax here, Jane, but it does get tied up with this notion of sacrifice. Sacrifice within has to be, has to has to pay, has to tip its hat as it goes by to its Christian heritage. Yeah. You know, churches have to talk about the sacrifice and the giving and the charitable works because sacrifice and charity go together. Deep at the heart of charity is this notion of noisy sacrifice. And I'm, I'm sorry, but the days of, the days of I don't like to talk about my charitable works are starting to go. I mean, even for individuals, it gets down to an individual level where, well, I could either give a hundred dollars because that's what I've got to give, or I could I could give a hundred dollars and run a marathon um, and raise money that way and get other people. So fundraising, noisy. The idea is, well, how about you go show other and, and people that I'm that I'm give, I can I can give a hundred dollars in a way that will show. Yeah, other and, and then they get I'm them to give money to me, so that again it's for it's for charity. Yeah. But Actually, I've got to do something. Christian, you know. Oh that's no 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 I no, no, I'm, I'm, I won't argue with you, Jane. I think okay. it's part of a a culture that we live in where mm. if you give something or you raise funds, it has to relate to some sense of personal triumph or growth or well-being. It's interesting, isn't it? And and that is a co-option of 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 the unblemished nature of a group of people getting together and for for mutual benefit, pooling their resources um, and educating their children, for instance or setting up a situation where no one is left in pain. Well, the proper Christian tradition, of course, is that well, the right I, hand I doesn't know what the left hand's doing. Well, I, <laughs> yeah, you're probably right, Jane. Yes. You're probably right. And, but, but and this, the people this who article, are noisy about it are called Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Ah. Oh, well, then, then, then there's, there's words for that too. But um, I, I think this whole process, I think, is, is devolving, and this fellow has put his finger on the pulse of it. Yeah. And... Um, I think it's obvious from, from what, from what Dar was saying. He's doing it from, from a position of quite, of significant knowledge and privilege. Mm. Uh, which is my You don't often hear people in those mm. positions, um, be so honest about, um, you know, the fact that you're only in that position be, because someone else goes without. Yeah. Perhaps and, they know their history and they and know that when there is enough disturbance throughout the world, you're going to have a revolution. Well, yeah, he's uh, Soros is the same. He made a fascinating uh, 
a speech at Davos recently about the Open Society, which is, you know, really worth reading. Mm, um, Gonski said the same thing. I mean, back to Australian education. Yeah. Gonski said the same thing. You've got to do something about this or you're breeding a revolution. Mm. And I'm telling you this, said Gonski, because I am a courtier to power. And if I wish to be a courtier to power, I wish, the, I wish for the status quo to remain. And so, therefore, you have to do something mm. about your segregated system because you are breeding a revolution. Mm. Yeah, whether it's in the, whether, whether the revolution has, has a, the face of Joe Toscano or the face of Pauline Hanson mm. um, is a question that's open, but you're definitely mm. not solving the problems which are deeply ingrained in the inequality in what we have here in Australia. It's fascinating too also that whole idea of those with the least giving the most. Oh, that's it's always, always been the That's way. borne out every day on the streets of Collingwood. Yep. You know, you walk down the street and I know for a fact I'm a pensioner, yep. but if I have change, I will give it. Yep. It is just that simple. Yep. yep, and you watch people in from the suburbs. And yet I get barely 200 bucks a fortnight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if I got it, then you've got it, you know. Yeah. And, and they're trying to get rid of cash. Yeah, oh, totally. Just trying to get rid of cash, you know. So hipsters, oh, no, I don't have any cash. Yeah. Sorry, I'm being a bit... Yeah. I, I don't want to be rude to hipsters or at 3CR. No, no, you're a, commu- a community radio station, and they are a community. Yeah. And welcome here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's have some music. Okay. <laughs> Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due by Monday, 10th of February at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR Station Manager on 9419. 8377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website 3cr.org.au forward slash people Time to get outdoors and lock in your next fitness challenge Time to tackle Australia's original teen challenge, Oxfam Trail Walker, happening in March You and three mates will journey through 100 kilometres of bush trail within 48 hours. Teams start together Stick together and finish together. Oxfam Trail Walker is a life-changing experience and every step you take helps raise vital funds to support people living in poverty. Register your team now at trailwalker.oxfam.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM Dale and podcast on the WWWs. Um, like a fascinating article there from Dave, but we're going to move on to some sort of good news, although it's not good news for us here in Australia. It does show a way forward, which which it's a good news for some human beings somewhere else on the planet. Um, And where they are on the planet is a little country called, well, it's not a little country, it's a big country called Canada. Canada is famous for many things. It has the highest proportion of standing fresh water um, as part of its landmass of any any, any country on the planet. So there you go, it's got lots of lakes. Um, But apart from that, Canada's education system has undergone a transformation over the last 10 years, as has Australia's. Australia's transformation has been the inevitable result of a private education system, which is down. down. Yeah, no, we've fallen down the PISA rankings. No one really wants to come here anymore when it comes to education, not just the coronavirus. Um, people don't want to necessarily come here because their education system is not that good. At the top end, it's sort of all right, but across the board, we are now falling out, way out of the top education systems of the world, which we were in for 15 years. Well, when I say 15 years, we were in for longer than that. It's just that when I started measuring such things. Um, Canada, however, has done the opposite. It's always been up there, but now it's rising. Um, and it's rising in a really interesting way. Um, because when you hear usual debates about the world's top-performing education systems, 
well, Australia's not there anymore, you usually get to hear about things like Singapore or South Korea or Shanghai, China, or indeed places like Finland or Norway, the sort of know-it-all Nordic countries. Now, when it comes to Nordic countries in particular, you hear this situation, well, it's all very well for them because they have very homogenous populations. Uh, they don't have a lot of multiculturalism, and so therefore, when it comes to education, all the children are very similar, similar expectations, and so therefore, that homogeneity gives a benefit. We here in Australia are a multicultural country from all around the world, and so therefore, to educate a bunch of children that are very different is more difficult, and so therefore, we struggle, and that's why. And so we can't do what fin- Finland does. We can't do... Um, equity here in Australia because we're all these different people, which I find a strange strange argument. Um, But with much less recognition than in places like Finland, Canada indeed has climbed into the top tier of international rankings. Um, In the most recent round of PISA tests, Canada was one of a handful of countries that appear in the top ten for maths, for science and for reading. Australia is now way... We're in the top ten for most of PISA. Uh, now we just, we've, we've just fallen away. Now the PISA tests, which are run by the OECD, are a major study, as your regular listeners will know, of educational performance. Um, they deal with problem-solving issues. They don't deal with the three R's. You know, they don't care how well you can spell and how well you can count. They know what they want to know how you can use English and maths to solve a problem. Are you serious? Because if you listen to Mr. T, and this seems to be our problem that we. Forgotten the basics. Uh, Mr. Tan is, uh, uh, is a politician and um, a, <laughs> a, um, he's a conservative politician in the federal government of Australia. And nothing that's come out of Canberra from the conservative politicians <laughs> in the last month has made any sense whatsoever. Quite frankly, it makes no sense. And when it did make sense, they sacked him. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah, he was no show pony, but yeah, when he started to sort of ask questions yeah. about the private school system, they got rid of him quick smart. <laughs> quick smart. Now, Canada are far ahead of the ge- geographical neighbours, the US, and indeed all European countries. Um, and, of course, Canada has very strong ties, of course, to both the UK and France. Um, look at a university level, Canada has the world's highest population of working-age adults who've been through higher education, 55% compared to an average across the OED of 35% and much more than Australia. Now, bear, bear in mind, that's higher education. That's not necessarily university. That's, you know, that's tertiary training in, in trades as well. Also, Canada um, is a migrant country in large part. Canada's success in school tests is also very unusual compared to other international trends. The top performers... Um, in terms of countries, are often cohesive, compact societies. And the current highest achiever, Singapore, has been seen as a model of systemic process because it's um, tiny and compact. And, you know, if you want to change something or be flexible, you can do it quickly. Um, but Canada does not even really have a national education system. It's based on autonomous provinces, and it's hard to think of a bigger contrast between a city state such as Singapore and the sprawling landmass that is Canada. Now, the OEC trying to understand, the OECD, I should, trying to understand Canada's success in education, described the role of the federal government as limited and sometimes non-existent. Also not widely recognised is that Canada's a higher level of migrants in the school population. More than a third of young adults in Canada are from families that are both parents are from another country. Kind of like Australia, really. But the children of newly arrived migrant families seem to integrate rapidly enough to perform at the same high level as their classmates. When the most recent piece of rankings are looking at, looked at more closely at a regional rather than a national level, the results for Canada are even more remarkable. If Canadian provinces entered PISA tests as separate countries, three of them, Alberta, British Columbia and Quebec, would be in the top five places for science in the world alongside Singapore and Japan, and above the likes of Finland and Hong Kong. So how has Canada overtaken so many other countries in education in the last 10 years? Now, Andreas, um, and Andreas Schleicher of the OECD's education, he's the Director of Education for the OECD, says Canada's big uniting theme, the one thing that's happened in Canada's education system, 
is well is it teacher training is it is it is it is it is it, is it, is it getting back to basics is it testing is, is it, it te- more testing assessment no it's equity Despite the different policies of individual provinces, there is a common commitment across all provinces in Canada to an equal chance for children in school. Not at home, not equal chance, you know, not, not, not branching out, I mean, that's, that's someone else's problem, but in a school, every child has an equal chance. Can you imagine a government... That gov- in Australia? I mean, I mean, cause we can couldn't you imagine even- a government that actually gave cared that much about its people? It's not a government, it's a culture because all these separate provinces are doing the same thing because culturally Canadians, there is an idea that every child every child has an equal chance Mm. in school now you can't even begin to say that in Australia if you do, you are just lying because we have such a bifurcated education I mean over 30% of the children in Australia are in segregated schools anyway and segregated by income. And people pay money to send their children to these schools because the system's not equal. Mm. Like, it's a reason to send your child to a private school. If you don't send your child to a private school, then you're doing the wrong thing because, obviously, it's an unequal system. You've got to get your child in there on top. Whereas Canada, no. He says um, there's a strong sense of fairness and equal access across the entire country. And this is seen in the high academic performance rates of migrant children. Within three years of arriving, the PISA tests show that children from new migrants have scores as high as the rest of their schoolmates. They're caught up. They've been caught up by the system. It makes Canada one of the few countries where migrant children achieve at a level similar to their non-migrant counterparts. Not true in Australia. Another distinguishing feature is that Canada's teachers are well paid by international standards. An entry into teaching is actually selective. Now, Professor David Booth from the Ontario Institute of Studies and Education at the University of Toronto highlights Canada's strong base in literacy. There has been a systemic efforts to improve literacy with well-trained staff resources such as school libraries and testing and assessment to identify schools or individuals who are struggling, and that relates specifically to newly arrived migrants. Fascinating. Rather than a country of extremes, Canada's results show a very high average with relatively little difference between advantaged and disadvantaged students, or indeed students in Quebec and Ontario, or students from Vancouver and Toronto, which is fascinating because there is no functional national system. Um, In most recent PISA results for science, the variation in scores in Canada caused by socioeconomic difference was 9% compared to 20% in France, 17% in Singapore, and over 30% in Australia. The equitable outcome goes a long way to explaining why Canada is doing so well in international tests. It does not have a tale of underachievement, often related to poverty. It's a remarkably consistent system, as well as little variation between rich and poor students. There is very little variation in results between schools compared with an average into other developed countries. Rather than high levels of immigration seen as a potential drag on results, Professor Jennings says in Canada's case it's likely to be part of the success story. Migrants coming from places like Canada and India and Pakistan and Africa are often relatively well educated and ambitious and see their children um, as getting into professional careers because Canada is the land of opportunity. These families have an immigrant hunger to succeed and their high expectations are likely to boost school results for their children. This is also true in Australia, but it doesn't translate to results. Um, Many families new to Canada want their children to excel at school and students are motivated to learn um, by their parents as well as a system that allows them to succeed. Whereas here in Australia we have motivated parents, but the system prevents them from succeeding. Um, Now, of course, the universities are now reaping the benefits. (laughs) And they're also now reaping the benefits of what they call the Trump effect, with record levels of applications from overseas students coming to Canada as an alternative to the United States and, indeed, Australia. Oh, my goodness, there's a business case. Now, Canada is a land of particular 
like there's very particular places. And one of the reasons why the whole thing is not centralised, as we sort of have in here in Australia, is that there's lots of very particular religious communities, like the Amish live in Canada. Um, and Canada has private schools in the same way as Australia has private schools. But, and this is the big and interesting thing, the commitment to education and equity for all is part of the Canadian psyche. And particular religious communities, no matter what their you know, extremism or otherwise, both culturally or politically or whatever, um, those religious values do not trump, do not come over the idea of fairness and equity for all, which I think is fascinating. Also, because of the funding structure, um, while there are private schools in Canada, they account for educating, get this, in Australia it's over 30%, but in Canada, less than 5% of the population attend private schools. And that is inclusive of a very large number um, of isolated religious communities who do have private schools, um, and, and, and do educate their children in isolation because that's part of their cultural practices. So taking that into account, mm-hmm. less than 5% of the, of the Canadian population are educated in private institutions of one form or another, which I think goes a lot to being able to put the concept of equity into practice, which is what they've done there in Canada. But La- if we ladies- have 95% of our children in, pri- in public schools, which do have this... Um, cultural belief that every child is important every child has the right to a free, secular and uh, universal education then I think we'd be much better off even than Canada Canada never had Whitlam who started it, Canada never had Hawke who increased it, Canada never had Howard who just let it explode it never had those political movements. But before we go any further, I've got to tell you something. It's a special thing because I found our great state school of the week. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great. Schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. I can't tell you. I can't wait to tell you about this beautiful little school. It's a primary school, and it's in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Now, the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne are, are a very strange place. If someone can someone can give me a call here at 3CR and explain the outer east of Melbourne, I want to know. Um, I, I know more about I know more about the markets of Marrakesh than I know about what goes on out there. But I tell you, well, it's a weird place. But there's some little gems of wonder. And one of those is Churnside Park Primary School. It's look, it's a ter- it's a wonderful place. I've been there. It's a vibrant learning environment. Um, and what there are about looking at the kids they've got, and there's about 250 of them, so it's a good size for a little primary school. Um, look, s- slightly more girls than boys, but it's all sort of mixed up. But the thing about Churnside Park is that there's a lot of kids there that don't, that don't come from a language background other than English which in an Australian context, in the Outer East, is just, I don't know, it's a bit weird. What do you mean there's not many kids that go home speaking different languages? That's just kind of strange. Only 6%. Um, and they've got a, two or three Indigenous students, but not many. But it's just a sort of a kind of an old-fashioned school that's about the kids. Um, the kids themselves, um, the ICSI value is around about 1,000, um, which means that there's about four, uh, 35% of the kids come from the richest families and um, the rest, you know, sort of 65-75% come from the poorest families in Australia. So it's sort of halfway down the middle. It's interesting that, you know, an X-year value of 1,000 doesn't mean you get just as many rich kids as poor kids. No, 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 no. That's, that's, it's a, you always get more poor kids at an X-year value of 1,000, which I find quite interesting. It means, means that our income levels are just, everyone just assumes they're skewed and you know what, they are. So the whole thing's inequitable to start with even before you start counting the numbers. But back to Chernside Park, because I want to say about good things now. Like, Chernside Park has made a point of keeping abreast of new technologies. And that's part of what's important. They're not going to fall behind at Chernside Park when it comes to iPads and stuff. But 
it also provides a personal approach to improve student learning. So it's not, here's your iPad, there's your lesson, buy it. There's a high emphasis on individual assessment in order for the teachers to have a thorough understanding of the child's learning needs. Now, assessment we often criticise here on the talk program. There are two types of assessment. There's more, but let's just keep it simple. There's assessment of learning and there's assessment for learning. Now, a teacher can assess to know the needs of the student. So so it's an assessment for um, the benefit of the learning process Mm -hmm. rather than learn something, do the test, learn something, do the test. Learn something, do a test, identify what the student needs to know more to fill in some gaps and then give the next test after you've taught to, taught, taught to their weaknesses. You know, so when you get a kid saying, oh, I don't do math, and say, well, you know what, let's assess you for learning because we can't have you leave this school going, oh, I can't do math, I don't really do math. Um, and when, when, when adults tell me that, gee, it annoys me. I said, oh, God, don't do math. I said, what are you talking about? Anyway, um, because, you know, just go and learn how to do it. <laughs> I know it's going to be hard, but, hey, that's what education is sometimes. How much does it cost? $11,000 each. That's cheap as chips. That's a lot cheaper than the private school down the road, just in government funds alone, let alone what the private school parents have to top up out of their own pockets. And, you know, their NAPLAN results for what it's worth. I would normally say in these situations, if it's a happy school where they're learning well, that's what needs, who cares about NAPLAN? It's just good. Actually, it turns out it's just bloody excellent. (laughs) Their writing skills at Chenside Park are well above um, schools with dissimilar students and they're actually well above um, all Australian schools, so even the stinking rich ones. So when it comes to writing at Chenside Park, you are the exception that proves the rule, which is to say, we don't care how much money your parents earn, you're going to be brilliant writers. There's some special teachers out there. there. Also, they're way above average in reading, grammar and numeracy as well, and they're just fine with all their spelling. It's all just, it's all just good news. So if you've got some ideas about where to send your kid, send them to Chenside Park if you're in the area. Chenside Park Primary School, you are our great state school of the week. Well, hooroo, that's it for the dogs today. If you want to catch up with us, you can do it at our website, www.adogs.info, or the 3CR website, www.3cr.org.au. Or if you've got a great state school you want to tell me about, give us a call, business hours, 94198377. But until next week, from Dale, Jean, and myself, Rob, it's bye for now.
Says he. 